Happy New Year, Happy 2018. Anthony Samrov here. Welcome to the Be Yourself and Love It podcast, episode 21. A few years ago, I was really working hard to make sense of my childhood and the effect it had on the formulation of my personality. I was not happy with a lot of the ways that I was treated when I was raised, and I read a lot of books on parenting to try and figure out what I might have got in an ideal world. And one of those books was Raising Our Children, Raising Ourselves by Naomi Aldort. I was so moved by the book that I got in touch with her and asked her to interview her. She kindly agreed and this is the result of that interview. Now, don't think you have to have children to benefit from this. This will benefit you even if you don't have kids, even if you never plan on having kids, because it'll help you make sense of some of the ways that you were treated and weren't treated when you were growing up. I'm speaking to Naomi Aldor, the author of Raising Our Children, Raising Ourselves, which I think is a wonderful mixture between parenting skills and some sort of mindfulness practice to teach you how to be more present with what's going on for yourself, what's going on for your children, and through that become a better parent. Hello, Naomi, how are you? Hi, uh, thank you for having me here. I'm very well, thank you. I'm very excited to have you on the show. Before we get started, for people who don't know anything about you, would you like to tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into doing what you're doing, writing the book and giving these lectures that you give? You know, we all live our life in a way there is no doer, as Byron Katie says. Uh, we are spiritually, we're this being in a body that seems to do what it does and attract what it attracts and creates waves around itself, whatever they are, uh, and, and come up with ideas. I don't know where they come from. The mind all of a sudden conjures these responses, these ideas. So I would say that my the way I love to answer this question is a big I don't know. It, it what it does. It's what this woman does. Um, but how she did it is uh, it started from uh, being a piano teacher. Actually, was originally a musician, a singer, and a pianist. Uh, classical music, and um, I started getting responses from parents of students of mine that they're getting therapy out of piano lessons. Hmm. And then parents asked me to give therapy to the whole family. Uh, particularly in the beginning, there was one family that said they were their daughter and themselves to have done psychotherapy for seven years by then with no real results. And then two months of piano lessons of their 11 years old uh, started transforming her. Uh, so they wanted the whole family to do sessions with me. I told them, look, I'm not a psychologist. I'm willing to get together with you. Uh, but uh, let's limit it to 10 sessions because I don't, I don't want to waste your time and my time. Well, um, so we limited the time. Actually, we came up with seven sessions. They liked that number. We produced all the results, the breakthroughs that for seven years they couldn't produce. Um, 
And two years later, when I met this woman and I asked, did the results last? She said, absolutely. Can uh, I have a session with you and produce results in one session? So she did. So uh, that was always my commitment to, uh, to just see through. And I have no idea where I got that gift from. Uh, families come to me from all over the world um to my house for like a few days or i go to their places sometimes in other countries uh, in other parts of america or europe or australia um and then you know problems that they used to have for years you know i see what's going on and something there has this razor ray that points to what it is and I, I didn't make that in me it's mm -hmm. it's a gift <laughs> it's one of those things where i get I'm always as amazed as everybody else, but I pin it and I clear it and the problems disappear. So that's why my husband has uh, uh, on the back of my book, my husband wrote one of the blurbs, um, Naomi Aldort is a miracle worker. I know it because I'm married to her. That's yeah. What a wonderful thing to have said about you by your husband. Yeah. So anyway, so I was originally a piano teacher, uh, then I had my own children, uh, but already before that, I was already working with parents. I was giving workshops for music teachers, which I still do uh, about music and and getting young children to, to excel in music through play and creativity. Uh, and, and I still sing and play the piano a bit myself to have musical kids, two of the three. Um, and that's that's kind of evolved by me starting writing my ideas in articles. Uh, my first article that I ever submitted to Mothering Magazine when it was in print international 1994 uh, was accepted. As a result of it, I was invited to public speaking. More articles were published and so on and so forth. By the time the book came out, I was actually quite well known in the progressive parenting movement and now the book is in uh, 16 languages or 15 languages and bestseller in some uh, countries and I travel and speak and and keep living my wonderful life. <laughs> and a wonderful book it is. What you've said, that, that's a really lovely story and also quite inspiring for me because actually I was a piano teacher as well and I've just recently retired from that to to focus on my communication coaching but I think that that was you know for me a really wonderful experience as well to connect with children and there's always so much more going on than just the music lessons as well for me it was very much about modeling a new way of learning where where the children were more in charge of their own destiny than they were in school so um, it seem, seems like we we have some interests in common in that respect. Yeah. What was it like, if you wouldn't mind my asking, transitioning from having written so extensively about dealing with children to then having your own children and applying that in your own personal life? Smooth. <laughs> you know, it's it's one of those things where it's so smooth that I don't know again how to answer because I don't remember a transition. Right. Was, uh, you know, my first baby was in my arms, home birth, go sleeping, and all I thought is I thought 
I knew what love is, but until now I haven't really. And that this is just beyond belief, the pleasure of loving, literally, uh, of this human being uh, is just beyond belief. And, and it still is. I mean, I think parenting is an incredible path. And I don't know that I had transition. I just went right into it like I always know in a way. Not that there weren't surprises, though. I don't want anybody to think this was some kind of a panacea. We had three children. We had fights. We had uh, jealousy. We had all the things that normal family have. Uh, and that actually helped me to help other parents because if I didn't have any difficulties and, and our children were these angels instead of children, which I'm glad they weren't, uh, also for their own sake, um, then how would I know what children are like in, in a close encounter in the home because they taught me a lot. And then when children come to my home, with whole families, and I do workshop, I encounter people's homes. I learn all the time. I learn from the children, from the parents. Um, so, yeah, it was a smooth transition, but it's not that the road is never bumpy, mm -hmm. and that the bumpy places are when we learn the most. Yeah, and we hope to never stop learning. One of the quotes from your book that I always come to time and time again, it's something that really stuck with me, was this one. Emotions are a form of discharge, just like sweat or a bowel movement. They have to be acknowledged so they don't get in the way. Can you teach us some of the ways that we can best engage with our children's emotions? Yes, absolutely. And maybe it'd be really memorable for the listener to uh, hear my concept about emotional constipation. Mm -hmm. it's like when, when a child, because it's the same thing. I mean, when I tell parents, they try to uh, prevent children or when we were children, we were prevented from crying and told not to cry and not to feel. Uh, can you imagine preventing a human being from going to the bathroom? Uh, we would literally die uh, and we couldn't do it. So uh, luckily <laughs> we couldn't do it. Um, but really the emotions are there to be expressed, to emote, to e move. Um, they move us and, and they need to get out there. So I have the first chapter of my book is really about self-expression. And if one reads nothing but that, it would already change their parenting ways if they don't already know this concept. This concept through my work for now 20 years and some other people who glued on to it um, on their own through me, through Chaim Ginot, nonviolent communication. There is a lot going on. So uh, it has opened up a lot. And in the 60s, there was re-evaluation counseling by Harvey Jackins who taught again to acknowledge emotions and let the tears flow freely. So the example here is really uh, important because today I'm almost working back from it a little bit with parents because a lot of parents take it too far. So the example is of course when a child is crying to not say don't cry, to not say nothing happened, but the opposite, oh I see you you scraped your knee uh, and, and you hug them and kiss them and you can cry as long as you need. 
uh, at the same time, you want to reassure them. You want to ask them, are you afraid it'll keep hurting like that? Yes, I understand. Um, and it will not keep hurting like that. We'll put something on it and it'll gradually go away. So you, you don't want to pump the feeling. Uh, so today, some people take the validation that I teach in the solve formula, which maybe we'll talk about later. Yes, we'll uh, get to the solve formula uh, for sure. Yeah, so some people with connection to emotions go overboard and dramatize the emotion, which is why in the book, every time I talk about validation, I also remind, or every third time, without drama. So you don't want to come to a child and say, in, I'll, I'll tell you a story, an example. It was a, a birthday party, lots of kids, and um, they had this... Um, Think little wagon that children sit on and, and take each other in. This is country setting. Um, and so there were a lot of kids, too many kids, on that little wagon that are being pulled a little downhill and it toppled over and all the children fell off. And one mother came from the inside of the house screaming, Oh no, oh no. So it was her daughter, of course, who started crying. So it's an example where, you know, you don't want to manufacture the emotion in the child. You want to connect with the emotion that's there and give the child freedom to express themselves. But if you come with, oh no, oh no, what happened? Oh no, you hurt yourself. Oh, that must hurt so much. Oh no, what are we going to, you know? And the mother picked her up and this was the only child that ended up in her mother's arms sobbing and crying while all the other kids some kids had some cr scratches and some uh, you know got some kisses and hugs and helped and brushed the dust off etc but she was the only one that's crying so the other side of it is uh, an example of being connected emotionally but not igniting a feeling that isn't there my three years old child I remember uh, looking at him, he was outside on the porch riding his tricycle, or, or maybe he was only two and a half or something. And I was sitting inside, and then he tumbled over with the bicycle on him. And initially, he screamed, he was surprised, but I didn't see anything serious happening. So I stayed put. He didn't even know that I'm seeing him. And he looks around to see if anybody's reacting. And nobody was reacting. So he got up, he got his tricycle up, he got on the tricycle, he went on riding. The same thing when a one-year-old tries to walk and they fall and they look at us. What am I supposed to feel? And you smile at them and say nothing and they get up and they keep walking. So that's an um, important balance for caregivers to learn to validate their children's emotions and allow their children's emotions but not to dramatize them and to encourage the children to feel emotions that they might not feel at all. At that point, it might be more about the parent having a sense of importance or efficacy by being needed by the child. Yes, Anthony, this is a very, very important point because my work is 
mostly with the parents and the children transform because the parents learn to know who they are and not project their anxiety or their anger or their issues on their children. It's the beautiful title of your book, Raising Our Children, Raising Ourselves. Part of being able to raise our children in the way that you teach is to first raise ourselves. Yes. So let me give you a couple of more examples because to me, examples are the most helpful. Yeah, me so, too. You know, so there was this mother in the park, the child, she had only one banana. She gave the banana to a child. This happens a lot. The banana broke, you know, the broken banana, classy example. And this woman was really wonderful. She, she wanted to validate the feeling, to be really connected. And she said to the child, oh, what a bummer. Your banana broke. Are you sad and disappointed because you wanted the banana whole? Uh, and do you need a whole banana? And, you know, she was doing what I call a communication workshop, pumping emotions to a degree they weren't there in the first place. And the child was so convinced by her mother that at that point she screamed and demanded to go to the store to get another banana, uh, which was not necessary and not her initial where she initially was. So, you know, this, uh, this, when people ask me when I tell this story, so what do you recommend? I say, well, a way to be also more respecting in emotional connection, in validation, is to acknowledge the facts rather than to read the feelings into the child. You know, it, it's actually non-respectful and a lot of children don't like when you read their feelings altogether um, and feel offended and, and, you know, it's their private inner world and you're telling them what they feel or you're guessing it. So I said, you just say, Oh, you, you, the banana is now in two parts and you want a whole banana. Uh, and if it's an older child and something different break other than banana, uh, and it's more serious for them, I even teach them to do something similar to the work of Byron Katie, um, uh, where you help the question, and, and it includes validation, but it goes beyond validation. You help the child see that the fantasy they're playing in their head of the whole banana or the whole tower or the whole rope or whatever it was that broke um, is what causes their upset. So let's say a, a seven years old, a stick that they really fell in love with in the park broke uh, and he's upset and say, you know, I would ask them um, you know, based on the Byron Katie four questions and turn around. Uh, so are you imagining the stick whole? Uh, and, and when you imagine it while you have, and you want it to be that way in your imagination, how do you actually feel? You say, well, then I want my stick to be whole. And I say, well, what if you didn't imagine the whole stick and you just looked at this one? You know, and, and you work with them through it, through the whole process to realize the emotion is valid, but it's induced by a thought, not by the stick. The two sticks are fine. There are other big sticks that can be found in the forest. Uh, having two can be interesting too. I mean, it's not like it's a problem. The problem is the child is wanting, having a thought, I should have a whole stick, the stick shouldn't have broke. 
so or saying to them are you saying to yourself depending on their age that the stick should be whole that the stick shouldn't have broken and yes that's what they say to themselves and how would they be without saying that to themselves and then getting to the turnaround children are so quick sometimes I do the turnaround right away so children call each other names and I have a story that I tell a lot in workshops about this family again family intensive came to my house and we were together in the car and one child called the other stupid and they start kicking each other in the back seat and I was in the front with the mother and I just say I'm stupid too and I gave them an example of some stupidity and then they started telling me examples of their own stupidity and sang in rhythm all kind of song I'm stupid, 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 we are stupid too, Beethoven is stupid, you know, the president is stupid, I mean whatever and we were clapping and we were having fun and we were giving examples and everybody was trying to outdo the example uh, of the other person's stupidity and the interesting thing is that uh, two weeks after they left here, the mother called me for her session and she reported that the kids were getting along so much better and that the older child said to her, I can't hurt my sister anymore because no matter what I say, it never hurts her. <laughs> and so instead of telling them over and over again, don't do it and it hurts feelings, teaching them to be weak mm -hmm. and feel more emotions that they need to mm -hmm. because what's the problem with stupid? I don't know a person who isn't sometimes stupid. And I also teach games to play with the children, to connect with them emotionally mm -hmm. to, and to show that all feelings are all right. So in the area of not being hurt by words, for example, we do a game, a circle game, the family sits together throwing a ball or, or pillow at each other and you throw a ball at someone and you say you're stinky and the other person has to say yes I am, thank you, yes I am and give an example of when they're stinky. And this can be include also wonderful things like you're generous or it can be you go around one word for going around through the circle so everybody gets the same word can do it with friends and family can have as big a circle as you want and you learn that you whatever somebody says about you you can always accept it you don't have to defend yourself and you can just be there with it so it's not enough to connect with the emotions it's also important to empower to be with the emotions as emotions not as reality mm -hmm. uh, that's where self-realization come in and what a wonderful advantage that must be to take into our adult lives where in the office or wherever you happen to work someone might want to describe you using an adjective. If you're able to find a moment where that adjective might have been true for you and um, accept it, you put yourself in a good position to avoid a lot of conflicts and fights. It's very hard to consider being resentful and continue criticizing someone who says, well, yes, actually, I do do that sometimes. I can see your point. Yes, and that uh, that's exactly what I teach. I say, first say yes, catch the ball that's being thrown at you. Thank you, yes, and find it. Because if there is an adjective in the dictionary of a human behavior, then I have it. 
they would invented those adjectives other than on our backs, on our behaviors, on our emotions. So uh, if somebody calls me greedy, I'll find three examples when I was greedy. Somebody calls me generous, I can find examples of my generosity. It's it's all there. You know, if somebody calls me stinky, I have my moments. I know everybody does. So if it if there is a word for it, then then it's fine and we want to teach the children to actually be at peace with all the qualities that they are rather than defensive and constantly afraid about their image and having to defend this perfect image i never stink and i never stingy and i'm never stupid that's a huge toll for any human being at any age to have to live with and to defend how much more freedom emotional freedom and strength we have when all the qualities are all right with us and then we can connect with the other person the other person says you know you've done this and this that was stupid and i says like yeah and now we're connected with both of us seeing me right rather than we're both at war we are completely peaceful and we're together connected understanding each other seeing our own humanity so so when we connect emotionally with a child, we never want to deny the feeling that comes from them, but we don't want to drown with them. We, we need to stay on shore and help them get out of the waters by sometimes helping them seeing that they're in a water, imaginary water, and sometimes doing real physical things that have to be taken care of. Uh, and hugging and listening. And then the validation is never a system that intends to stop the emotion. That's another mm-hmm. important thing about connecting with emotions. So if you have done whatever conversation that validates and empowers, um, and the child needs to do crying and screaming and, and throwing things, then you be with them. And that is... um, The validation may bring more tears and you just be with it until the end. You just be there. I I understand. And you just stay calm. Don't get anxious. And that's something we need to be very patient with because sometimes accepting someone's emotions, whether they're a child or an adult, their emotions may intensify and it's very easy to get impatient and think, I need to do something here. I need to fix this. I don't know if this is helping. It might well be a few hours before the that person comes to you and says, thank you so much, I feel a lot better now. And we need to have the bravery to understand that, really accepting what other people are experiencing around us is really giving them experience or giving them permission to experience what they're experiencing and the old saying goes the only way out is through and i think that's very true for our emotions if if we want to come out the other side of our emotions we have to go through them yes and be at peace with however intense they are both parent and child the child learns from the parent oh it's all right to feel my feelings and to have them be intense and to go through them and what can we learn about dealing with our own emotions from all you've taught us so far? Well, this would take a few hours if you want to get into that, because that's uh, the main part of the work that I do is with the parent, not the child, because 
the children are really just the projected material of the parents, mirror of the parents. So when the parents deal with their own healing of what happened to them as children and the concepts that they're running through their head uh, and they clear those up, then the child is just a mirror, then whatever is in the mirror becomes clear as well with the parent. So when parents come to me and I have, you know, mostly working by phone and Skype internationally, giving sessions, uh, like the way we talk right now, uh, or people come to me or I go to them or I do workshops uh, and web seminars. Anyway, so what I mostly do with people is, um, on the backs of Byron Katie and the inquiry, uh, what I did originally is the solve formula. The S is the self investigation and I've expanded it. And it's also in the book about inquiry, but in the book I have not demonstrated the full inquiry, which I do with people now uh, and have done for years. Um, but that's really the bottom line. You know, when a parent says to me, my child has a, ton a lot of tantrums, I don't know anything about their child. That's a mirror. I know that the mm. parent has a lot of tantrums. Yes. And, and it's not the parent's fault. It's what happened to them as a child So, uh, and how they grew up. But we go into their tantrum. Their tantrum is, you know, my child doesn't go to sleep. I'm so tired. That's a tantrum. I, I, you know, and then they struggle and say to the child, you know, I have to have you go to sleep. Come on, fall asleep. Um, you know, they rock them. They do whatever they want to do. And they're anxious inside. The child feels the anxiety, doesn't fall asleep even more so. Uh, or whatever, or the husband didn't come home to, to give the, the woman a relief so she can go to yoga class. She missed her yoga class. She has a tantrum. She burnt the rice, or he burnt the rice, you know, get upset all about it. And that's how we teach our children. And we also teach them to have tantrum by responding to them with that anxiety. Mm. Oh, get what he wants because I can't handle them crying and I'm not saying to restrict children unnecessarily or be unkind you want to be kind you want to create a yes environment that works for children absolutely but sometimes you know you can't run into the busy street you can't run in the water before you can swim you can't just eat candy etc etc there are things where the parent has to be what I call a leader not a controller mm -hmm. leader. Uh, and yet the parents sometimes out of their wanting to connect with the child um, become a little bit of their own puddle and, and can't quite do it or are anxious and put that anxiety on the child. So the, the tantruming is definitely a good example where in families that the children tantrum a lot, I know that in their own adult way, the parents are tantruming. Or when a parent says to me, my child should listen to me, I mean that my child doesn't listen to me and I would say I would work with the parent or their on their expectation uh, that the child should listen to them and usually they realize the child does listen that they're actually lying they're calling it listen and what they mean is obey right of and, course. and then the child shouldn't obey it's not true because you want the child to be self-reliant. You want the child to listen to themselves. You don't want to train them to be molested when they're older or younger. Uh, 
because they've been trained, you should just do what you're told. You, you know, most parents who come to me definitely see that you want to preserve the child's ability to be rooted in himself and self-reliant, like co-sleeping. You know, people say, well, shouldn't the child learn to sleep by themselves so it would be independent? And say, no, the opposite. His independent choice is to sleep with you when it is. And when you honor that, he's learning my feeling and how I feel life should be is right. I can trust me. And that's what creates their independence. While the other way around, when we tell them, you know, you shouldn't listen to yourself without saying those words, of course, you should sleep in the other bed, you should listen to me, you should do what I say, they're learning to obey somebody else's authority and ignore their own, which can be rather dangerous. Right, and there is some evidence to suggest that that children of authoritarian parents are more susceptible to peer pressure. Exactly, that's where I was going. You you just completed the sentence. Lovely. What you said uh, reminded me of a very touching moment that I had as a piano tutor coming back to that. I had a, uh, a student that was sometimes quite scared to take risks with music that was a bit above his level. So once uh, one time I said, well, do you know what? I, I think you can do it. Why don't you give it five minutes? And if you still don't think you can play this, the piece, then we can move on to something else. You know, I'll never make you. Mu- I'll never make you play music that you, that you don't want to play. And he, of his own volition, turned to me and said, "No, y- yeah, you'll you'll try and persuade me." And I felt very touched that he said that in his own words and noticed that I would try and persuade him. But if he wasn't to be persuaded, it was his authority at the end of the day on what music that he should learn. And if, if I couldn't persuade him, it was his piano lesson, not mine. I was I was there to help him. And I think that, you know, there's a, there's a role for parents to offer guidance and wisdom to children because they've got more experience. But it's better to negotiate and persuade than to force. Well, I take it even further and don't even persuade. I really respect children and I think if they have the facts, they don't need persuasion. Uh, If they know, you know, if you do this, then this can happen, these are the possibilities and it's up to you, uh, then there's no need to do anything else that I totally trust them on their choices within what's healthy. I don't trust them to choose to uh, which restaurant to go to and go to no, I don't, that's not what I mean by trust. I'm talking about decisions about the self, autonomy, uh, you know, the power over the self authentically, not about being seduced by the media or the, uh, the store to sell you candy or by your taste buds if they got accustomed to sugar. That's addiction and that's being uh, persuaded mm-hmm. by the industry. Uh, right. So right. I. I I don't mean that, but I mean that uh, within choices that are really the autonomous right and the business of each human being that are safe and just a personal choice that has to come from inside, um, I would even avoid persuading. Um, So I I think that that child was very, very smart. (laughs) Mm. Lovely. 
So you you have mentioned yourself formula twice before, so maybe it's time we hear it in more detail. What is your healing self? Self stands for when something happens wrong, let's say you're upset, your children are hitting each other, or a child spilled something and you're tired and you ask them many times to do it this way or that way and not spill. Um, before you you get into saying anything, the S is for self-talk, to calm yourself down. Uh, and in the heat of the moment, you know, when you have time later, the S is really to do the full four questions and turnaround that I do with parents for self-realization. On the spot, if you're skilled at doing the work, the four questions and turn around, you can do them quite quickly in your head. If not, I say just even imagine getting angry at the child, run the movie of yourself, uh, and that's the S. Notice the emotions in you and own them. Realize that's you, that's not your child. And give yourself a little self-therapy inside of you. Uh, but if you have the time even writing down the thought, like he should listen to me or he shouldn't spill the, the juice on the floor, whatever the thought, whatever is happening, and look at that thought quickly. And if you have done this process before, you may realize right away, this is really funny. I mean, he just spilled it. How can I say he shouldn't spill it? You know, it's like saying it shouldn't rain when it's raining. That's what happened. Um, and then, then you get some relief. The A is once you got relief about yourself and you have clarity about reality, there is the child and they spilled and that's what they're supposed to do at that moment because they did. Doesn't mean we encourage to do it again and again. It's just human accident or human emotion or whatever. So we put the attention on the child so that we can see, we can be present to them. Most of the time we make the greatest mistakes in responding to little calamities because we're too stuck in ourselves. And that's reaction. And that's why the subtitle of my book is Transforming Parent-Child Relationship from Reaction and Struggle to Freedom, Power and Joy. So by doing the S, you get away from the reaction and become able to actually see what's going on for the child. You know, maybe it was an accident, maybe they're really upset and angry, maybe they didn't want that juice and I gave them the wrong juice against their will, I didn't hear what they say, and maybe it's something I don't know, but here it is. The L is for listen, uh, which means, again, if it's a nonverbal child, it's about being attentive and trying to read the intent behind the child behavior. The intent is always good. So it's either an accident or there was some intent that has to be validated, acknowledged, recognized. Or if it's a verbal child, to actually listen to them. They may be talking or they may be waiting for you to ask a question. Is that what you wanted to do or would you like another juice? Uh, was it an accident or not say anything and just give another juice and clean the juice? If you got the feeling that it was an accident, uh, then you would treat the child like you would treat a guest. If it was a guest in your house that spilled something, you would calm them down to make sure they don't feel bad, right? Like, don't worry, I have more and I'll clean it. Don't worry, don't touch it, it's fine. That's what we would say to an adult guest. So a lot of possibilities in that attention and listen. Then the V is validate. So whatever you see is going on for the child, like we talked before, this is not about 
pumping some new emotions or teaching a child to feel what they, you know, what you think they should feel. Oh, bummer, you know, the juice is spilled or whatever. Uh, but it's about validating what's there. Maybe the child looks scared. I have so many example stories in the book. Uh, like one father who comes in when his daughter broke a vase in the book and he follows his somebody that studied with me that's how I know these stories parents tell them to me and his first validating sentence is acknowledging the anxiety she may be feeling of being afraid of him it's not even about the vase he says are you afraid that I would be angry at you the way I was angry the other day when this and that happened and she says yes and that's the validation she's really connected to what he's saying because he's touching on something that happened to her so validating and then the E is for empower which is what's missing I would say in most of the communication uh, skill building teaching of parenting and other you know nonviolent communication is not just for that nonviolent communication has uh, making inquiries but often at least the way people take them is they inquire to get their need met and it's important to know that no need is absolutely real other than some very very basic primal needs mm. and if we make requests of them we're actually digging ourselves deeper into wanting them rather than being free of even needing them in the first place so I always remind people in the empower part that how we know what a need is is very simple we have it right have it that if we didn't have it we'd be dead exactly so and how we know that we don't need something is we don't have it and we're still breathing hmm. And still alive, and I don't mean that we need to reduce our existence to breathing, but we we do need connection and 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 love and uh, uh, and warmth and air and food and you know affection. These are things that make our life more rich, and yeah. if we can see these things as things that we that will make our life more rich rather than things that we need to for life to be bearable, then we can enjoy them while they last and um, retreat into a more simple pleasure when they're not available to us. Exactly. Not only that, but then in the process, when I do the work with parents uh, and with children, they realize that they don't really need it. Um, so, you know, it's like I need for them to be quiet. I need quiet. There's too much noise in the house. And pretty soon they do the process with me. Is it true that you need it as in real need and not something that we already proved that you are fine and you're existing without? Um, they realize, no, I don't really need it. It's not a need. And that's a huge relief. Then when we don't have the sentence, I need quiet right now, we stop shouting at the children to be quiet when they can't. And find, and, and if we want to have some quiet time, then we design it. We get a babysitter, we wait till husband or partner is at home, we call grandma and say, would you come and take the kids for a while? Uh, so I always say to parents, if you can get what you want, 
don't don't call it a need so that you're not that's dramatizing a want uh, but if there are things that you would like to have more quiet time a break from the kids uh, more sleep then by all means arrange it like an adult don't have a tantrum crying about i'm not getting it when you can't get it but do arrange it when you can when you can't arrange it then it's not available to you then you don't need it at that moment why because it's not available needing something that is not available is war inside of you makes you even more exhausted more in pain and a worse parent so what kind of parent are you when you want something you can't get? Not the one you want to be. So the moment you make peace with reality by doing this process, like you turn it around, I don't need them to be quiet and you join them and you join the noise. And, you know, I remember uh, having two families here and we were like having a session in the living room and heard this phenomenal noise because my husband was setting up the table for dinner and there were all the silverware on the table and it was actually one of my children started it uh, and the children got the silverware they went around the table and started banging on the plates it made a huge racket and you know we needed quiet we were having a session in the living room not far from there of course we could have moved to another room but I wanted the parents to see what I'm doing in order to learn and I joined them and eventually the same child who started it started screaming with it ah, just making the noise louder and louder hmm. so i joined it we had such a good time trying to hmm. be as noisy as we can uh and i have a soprano so i added quite a sound to it and and eventually it was the child who started it that said enough <laughs> because he <laughs> was quiet hmm. But, you know, and then we probably got quiet this way a lot faster than we would have if we tried to tell them not to do it when they just invented a phenomenal noise game mm -hmm. and cooperative noise game from which they learned cooperation, you know, group uh, working together, teamwork, you know, they're creating all this sound together. They were drumming, they were doing some rhythm, they were doing some singing some sound some screeching uh it was really wonderful and there was no no reason on earth to negate it and and demand of the children to not have their freedom so that we can have our need for quiet uh, so we didn't need quiet at that time and realizing that gave us freedom to really enjoy the children it always seems best whenever possible to work with the child in whatever they're doing and use that rather than set yourself in opposition to it. But what's more, if you if you were to go in there and start telling them how wrong they are, and that, that was part of your parenting style in general, we start to feel like there's something, something wrong with us as children that yeah. um, we're bad. And that's yes. just never that's just never a healthy message to give. And uh, when we look around the world, so many people, are, adults, are still carrying around this great weight of the badness that was put on them as a child whenever they weren't doing what their parents wanted. Yes, exactly. And again, I'm also teaching to be leaders. It's not about license. It's not that children should do whatever they want. They're born into a society, into a family. And there are certain ways we do things and certain ways we're considerate with each other. 
uh, and it's important for them to join it, not to run it. Uh, it's too much for them. So again, uh, I want to stress that because in recent years, parents have taken the validation and being kind and respectful, sometimes too far, where they end up with children who hit them and who demand and, and scream at them. And it's not what's meant with that. We want um, the child to feel secure that they are born and grown into an existing set of social codes and behavior and that they enjoy fitting into that and feeling comfortable with that. So that's, that. I just want to always stress that. We don't want to get overboard with disrespect. Respect doesn't mean license, it means freedom. And freedom for all of us to be ourselves inside, not to necessarily get whatever we want. Uh, my children used to be able to spend uh, hours being completely silent to let me give sessions by phone. And you know, the youngest one, if he wanted to be next to me, two or three years old, would sit for a whole hour saying nothing when I gave him something to eat and enough toys and gave him enough attention right before setting it up so he can. Uh, and he would just sit quietly or my children would let me take a nap when they were a little older and play with each other in the playroom, keep the door closed and not be very loud. They're totally capable of doing these things when life generally, they see that we all work to make it work for each other. It's not about a license to do whatever you want or to have whatever candy you want. Uh, it's about internal authentic freedom to be who you are. That mm -hmm. includes also being a person in a group and considerate of other people. Another quote I really loved from your book is, a child's actions are not bad or good. They're simply expressions of emotional and physical needs or they are innocent play. Yes. And you know, another way that I've been saying it now is everything a child does has absolutely 100% a valid reason. And as parents, we need to go to the reason. Uh, many people are talking to me, you know, my child is screaming or my child hitting the brother or the sister. And I say, yeah, you want to stop that immediate hitting, but don't be angry at the child for hitting, rather be understanding and connecting with the reason that they're hitting. They have a valid reason for hitting and a valid reason for not having other tools other than hitting to do what they're doing. Uh, and often the reason is curable by what parents do or by the setup. Could be as simple as don't leave your older child with the little one because they're not yet an adult and they're not a parent and they can't handle a two years old or a three years old. It's too much for them. Mm -hmm. uh, so less time for them together because I always say young child should be only with someone who can actually take care of them, not with another person who is just like them, not yet having those social skills. So it could be as simple as that. It could be as simple as you not saying just a minute, just a minute, but actually coming in time before things fall uh, out of hand. Uh, it can be seeing that the older child is being really um, losing a sense of security in your love because you're giving a lot more care and attention to the baby and need some of the 
therapy games that I provide at the end of the book in the in the last chapter about how to be jealousy therapy games. I've invented mm -hmm. lots and lots of healing games. Uh, not all of them are in the book, but some of them are in the book. Uh, there is power games to regain a sense of power when a child feels really helpless. Um, and there are other games that I teach in my three days workshop and three days advanced workshop uh, and in my private sessions and family intensives that really uh, help children with these issues. One thing I definitely wanted to get to is the fact that in the book you do identify five primary needs of children and I was wondering if we could just spend the last part of the interview exploring what those five primary needs are and how we can make sure that those needs are met. Beautiful and that connects with what we talked before about needs. So needs are always these types of things, need for love. Uh, need for freedom. It's need is never for candy, or or for uh, getting to be first in line, or or hitting somebody. That's not a need. Um, so those the, might be strategies for trying to meet a need, and strategies could be good strategies or poor strategies. But yeah. yes, but but our needs are more fundamental than that. And our job as a parent is to recognize the need, and that's how it connects to what we spoke about before. One child hits the other, yes, we have to stop the heating, but we need to provide for the need of the heater uh, so that they wouldn't need to do that again. So our job is to prevent them from having to do it, from needing to do it. So, but the five basic needs that are needs that when they're not met, we're going to get uh, problematic behaviors and issues are first of all, love. Uh, a second, freedom of self-expression, and I'll get into them, but I want to spell them first. Then autonomy and power, which we spoke a lot, a little bit about, emotional safety, and a sense of self-esteem of I'm worthy. So love, going back to the first one, love can only be love when it's unconditional. If, if you do what I say, I love you, that's not love, that's manipulation. Uh, so that's why I also teach not to praise children, not to reward, but rather to appreciate them unconditionally, even when they're doing something that we don't like, the appreciation doesn't go away. So for example, um, and I like to give story examples again. When one of the children comes out of the, uh, I think it was actually the bedroom, they were all jumping with some friends uh, on the bed. And at four years old, one of my children came out. It was again when I was doing a family intensive, I was working with the mother in the kitchen. And my son comes out and, and says, uh, I disturbed. And they told me that if I disturbed five times, I would have to leave. Um, and it's so tempting. Parents immediately want to say, so did you learn your lesson? Which <laughs> is mm. immediately creating shaming and so much pain and so much separation and the opposite of love. The unconditional love is out the window. It's like, oh my God, not only I was sent out of the room, but now my mother uh, is shaming me too. She's sending me away too. And a child is likely to start hitting the mother, crying, uh, going away despondent, depending on their nature and age. 
another parent may think it's a nice thing to take the child back to the room and tell the older child who told them to leave that maybe they should give him another chance and be inclusive and, you know, validate the child's feeling needing inclusion and all this wonderful stuff. And now she's in the room and the child who was sent out is feeling like a victim that has to be rescued and the older child feels undermined. He was, you know, being a leader and being very compassionate, giving five chances. I think that's plenty. Uh, and sending him away and we're undermining him and everybody is just learning victimhood and will probably be more violent and aggressive next time. So anyway, when this child came to me, I didn't do any of these things, but unconditional love. Uh, I validated, so again, it's what we learned before. So I asked him and you couldn't help yourself. And he said, yes. And I said, I know, it's hard. And when you grow older, you will be able to control yourself better because I was concerned uh, in putting attention on him that he may feel failing, like how come I can't control myself? Will I ever? And he's seeing a mother who completely has no issue with it, unconditional love or self-control if you want. I didn't have to control myself because there was no anger in me, but, uh, but he could see it that way. And I'm telling him, as you grow older, you'll have more control. And I collect him into my arms and I tell him that I love him and I give him a kiss and he had few tears. And, and then he just realizes, oh my God, no matter what I do, my mother doesn't stop loving me and I'm all right. And I can handle that I don't always control myself and I'll get better. And I can handle when life doesn't go the way I want. I think I also validated you wanted to stay in the room um, earlier, but in the in the episode. And, you know, and he's just, I kissed him. And then he kind of became soft and got off my body and went to the other room and played peacefully. And I heard him humming to himself while playing. And there was just no problem. And everybody learned the most important lesson is they're respected, they're loved, and they can handle life. Mm -hmm. you know, so the validation didn't dramatize, nothing terrible happened to him, nobody struggled to fix, and, and, but his image in the eyes of his mother never changed. She loves him just the same, say, so, yeah, I, I, I failed to not disturb, but look, I'm still fine. I'm still a human being. And the older boy in the room there knew, you know, my leadership is accepted. I mean, he probably never doubted it. He never expected me to bring his brother back because he knows I respect him and his choices. And he's till this very day as a grown up, uh, a very much a leader in, in terms of social and psychological situations. Uh, very, very compassionate and wonderful person. So, so that would be an example of unconditional love, even when one child hits the other, even though you interrupt it, you keep loving the child that hits is actually suffering more than the child who's being hit because that one is over. The moment the hand that hit is not on him, he's fine. You give him a kiss, you say, here, why don't you do this? And you have to spend more time with the aggressor because he's the one suffering. To be driven to hit someone, you have to suffer the valid reason is really strong. So that's the one who needs a lot of love. And the last chapter of my book on this particular subject explains how to do it. Then comes freedom of self-expression, the first chapter of the book. And that's really 
the willingness to let the child have their tantrum, to let the child, and again, the book is full of examples. One of them is about a child who re remembers a time that her mother threw her bike away or aside and it broke in her anger. And the child actually recreated that scene and threw her the bike and threw the, herself on the grass and started sobbing. The sobbing she didn't do back then when it was at relatives and there was no freedom to do it. So this mother, um, with my help reminding her, just keep it free, keep validating and, and acknowledging, yeah, I see what you're showing me and you were really angry at me that I did that. Um, and the child did the full sobbing to really let them express, let them do the screaming. Screaming and tantruming doesn't hurt anybody. And we want to have the muscle, the loving muscle, and it's also unconditional love to be the loving psychologist who is able to listen. Because when we want to stop the tantrum, we're being selfish. We don't want to have the pain of listening to the child crying. We want happy children. It makes us feel nice. But truly, the child at that moment needs therapy. And the therapy is simply being listened to and doing their tantrum, doing their self-expression. And the other thing about self-expression is for the child to be free to say, I hate you, or so-and-so is stupid or whatever it is. You know, when a child says to a parent, I hate you, I always tell parents, tell them, tell me more about it. I understand. I didn't let you have what you wanted. Uh, tell me more how you feel about it. Yaki mommy, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> and really acknowledging that and let that come out of their system because again, we don't want the emotional constipation. We want reality. And yes, if the child hate is also rooted in thoughts that aren't true, like, you know, you're, you don't love me, you love only my brother, then yeah, we go into some inquiry. We go into some examples, we wanna listen. Like, okay, so what happens when you tell yourself the story that I don't love you? It's when I hold the baby or when I tell you, when I criticize you, I see and, and finding together the examples when they feel that I do love them or that you do love them. It's like when you do this, when you do that and reminding them while I'm holding the baby, I love you. While I'm holding dinner pot of, of soup, I love you. You know, who and what I hold in my hand doesn't change my love for you. But you have to really be that. So when the child comes to you and they, so to speak, misbehave, you are like in the story about the child coming out of that room. The love doesn't change. So that's connected to the emotional safety. The fourth one, when a child feels emotionally safe, that you would not punish them, criticize them, or reject them, or try to stop them when they express themselves, then they will express themselves fully and be done with it and not identify with the emotion, and, but just see, oh, I have an emotion and my mother is at peace and she's holding me or listening to me if I don't want to be touched or held. And of course, if the parent is the cause of the upset, then we need to look at back to love. I mean, are you restricting them unnecessarily? Are you controlling them or manipulating them in some way? So it always goes in circle and ties back together, but emotional safety um, is a really tough one because 
we want to give children uh, some sense of the social values we grow up with, but we don't want to criticize what they're doing and their errors when they make them, but to actually include them and make it in a way that they can learn rather than they be afraid of us. Although some level of anxiety of children from adults is not completely avoidable uh, so far in order to, you know, learn certain mm -hmm. things. But that's our goal, to make it emotionally safe as much as possible so children can express themselves. Then the need for autonomy and power, um, it's, it's again, it's what we spoke about in a way already before, about respecting the child choices that have to do with his or her own inner world, what to do, uh, within what we provide. So if I don't want my child to eat candy, I don't have candy at home. But if all my food at home is healthy food, I don't force my child to eat a certain thing. Even if we prepare a complex dinner, if they'd rather have some avocado and, 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 uh, um, and tomato, I would go ahead and grab the avocado and tomato and cut it into their plate and be happy that they eat something else healthy. These are the kind of examples of the kind of food that I would offer. Uh, and so my children would choose within what's available uh, something else and I wouldn't force them. So respect their autonomy, where they want to sleep, when they want to go to sleep. You know, a lot of parents don't respect the child's autonomous sense of themselves when they should go to sleep. They want to put the child to sleep based on their idea of how many hours they need to sleep, when they need to get up, or even if they're homeschooled or still young and at home, just their idea that they want time to themselves without the child, and they like to use sleep as babysitter. Um, so that's not respecting the autonomy of the child or where the child should sleep. So um, I have a whole lot of articles, uh, hundreds of articles that have been published internationally. And I think there are quite a few, one of them in the Attachment Parenting International website um, and others in other magazines. I, I don't remember where, but uh, I think they're easy to find about the Zen of bedtime and there are other titles. I think the, the Attachment Parenting one has uh, two articles about sleep. Um, they have different uh, titles. Um, so that's, that's autonomy, really respecting those inner pride. And the self-esteem is really the result of all of this. You want your child to feel who I am is right. So you don't want to devote your day to constantly giving them the message that who they are is not all right with you. Uh, so I think we gave enough examples that this would be redundant now. Uh, but what I do want to add to it is what it is not. So self-esteem is not praise. It's not pumping the ego. It's not, and again, that's a mistake that has been done in the last 10, 20 years, is people coming from a background of punishment and authoritar authoritarian parenting. They want to be really nice and they really go overboard telling their child you're so spatial and unique and you're better than everybody basically uh, and the children get really hung up on that it's hard to keep living up to that you come yeah. into as an adult and you're not unique you're not spatial there are billions of others like you you're just another person mm -hmm. 
and it's really hard to put that together after you've been kind of brainwashed for years and years and years about how spatial and amazing you are. Um, so I'm not saying to not treat your child with that loving amazement that you have in you, but I would spare those words and just be loving, you know. There's always a risk of giving a compliment with an adjective. If you say someone is kind, then they might feel like they always have to be kind and when they feel like taking care of themselves instead of someone else, they suddenly feel an obligation to live up to the label that you slapped on them. If they, yeah. if you say they're beautiful, they might worry that one day, you know, some, some, some lovely looking ladies grew up and they were constantly told how beautiful they were and then when they got old, they suddenly got a real complex about the fact that they were looking, uh, they were losing their looks. So yeah. I, I think if we want to acknowledge yeah, what I teach, uh, and there's a three-parts article that was published in a Canadian magazine years ago, um, maybe on my site, I'm, I'm not sure where it is, but, um, and maybe an MP3. Um, I have a whole big lecture about what to do uh, to appreciate and connect without manipulative type of praise and evaluation. It definitely doesn't have to be evaluation and appreciation doesn't have to have evaluation in it. If my child brings me a flower, I don't have to say good boy or how wonderful or how kind you are. I can simply say thank you. <laughs> Somebody yes. does a servings for me, I can say thank you. Or if my children are quiet in order to let me have a nap in the afternoon, I get up, I can say thank you, and I can say I'm feeling so much fresher now, it helped me so much, so that I let them know as a feedback that what they did actually had some result that in, in real life that was wonderfully helpful for me, rather than saying you were so good uh, or praising them with evaluation. But when people, when children do things for their own enjoyment, I never recommend to evaluate it because they're doing it for themselves. They're drawing for themselves, they're singing for themselves, mm -hmm. they're playing piano for themselves. And, and uh, a teacher-student situation is a little different because we do need to give feedback uh, in order to create progress, but the child then expects it. Yes. But in the in the home, uh, the child plays the piano for their own enjoyment, and if I also enjoy it, uh, then I can sit there and enjoy and say thank you at the end. Yes. And it was certainly a, a frustration to me when my mother used to comment on my piano playing when I was trying to learn a piece. Yes. Um, Parents sometimes like to compliment children on things like sharing. If it came naturally to the child, they think it's something that needs to be reinforced. But if you if you say, oh, good sharing, I liked how you were sharing, yeah. you're now focusing that child on the consequences to themselves. They now will share to get a verbal reward rather yeah. than simply share for the joy of sharing. Exactly, and that's exactly what I've been teaching for 20 years, and it's now catching on. I've seen it in other people's articles. It's starting to be to be known. So yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, sharing is a good example. I don't teach children to share. I think it's extremely unfair to expect children to share in a society that doesn't share. Yes. We are we are the 
the, the, you know, I grew up in a society that still shared. I still could go to a neighbor and, and ask for things, use their phone, um, go into their house. It was unlocked and take things. Uh, in today's world, your home is your castle. You lock it. You sign uh, 20,000 pieces of paper to acknowledge that you own it or you rent it. Uh, your car does a, you know, a noise if somebody else tries to get into it and you never loan it to anybody. Uh, your money is yours. It's locked in the bank under your name, with your number, with your password. Oh my God, we are possessive. And children are seeing that very quickly. They see I am what I have and they start wanting to own things and to say this is mine, this is mine, because they want to be like us. And then we come and say to them, you should share. It's like, mm -hmm. should I? You don't. <laughs> yeah, in the family we share and we should keep doing that. And in our family we try to not have mine, yours, but it's everybody's. The piano definitely was everybody's and never, you know, didn't create fights. Uh, and being in nature is a lot easier than having a lot of possessions. But my goodness, you know, when children do share, it's their own pleasure to share. That's why they did it. So absolutely, these examples you give are exactly the intent to manipulate, trying to reinforce. Reinforce is the language of, of um, um, the behavioral psychology. Um, of wanting to manipulate, wanting to cause the child to behave a certain way, which is the opposite of self-esteem. It's others' esteem. It's how do I become someone who pleases other one? And seeking approval is probably the main uh, pandemic, uh, emotional pandemic we suffer from. Every insecurity at bottom line is seeking the approval of others and it goes so far that parents tell me and I see it that they sometimes in public mistreat their own child to impress an onlooker that they don't even know. So true and and people are more likely to be strict in public because they're worried about getting dirty looks from other parents for not controlling their child. Exactly, exactly. And I have, again, again, in the book, there are a couple of examples of that. One of them, the story with the diaper and the ant and the woman was a client of mine. So she caught herself mid-air and, and actually undid the, the path that she was, you know, trying to impress her sister instead of take care of her child. Uh, and I always say to parents like the opposite, you know, if you want the child to be self-esteem, don't manipulate them, don't change your behavior in, in front of others. Notice your own desire to seek approval and see how it gets in the way. Uh, for example, my firstborn, since age two, every time we went to a restaurant, he didn't want to eat. He was always a very social person and very caring about other people and he would go to, from table to table and talk to people. And for some of them, it was disturbing them probably if they had a romantic candle dinner. I can imagine a two years old coming and telling them about dinosaurs wasn't exactly in their plans. Um, and people would expect that I would get up and remove him from there. But that's his life mm -hmm. and that's their life. And in one rare case that I saw that something was extreme, I did tell the other people, not my child, to feel free to tell him off in a right. nice way. 
uh, because most people I noticed did that. They would say to him after a while, okay, you know, we are having our dinner. Why don't you go somewhere else now? They took care of themselves. And it's very patronizing for me to take care of other adults by removing a child as if they cannot take care of themselves. A lot of them were enchanted and were like, finally, there was a content to their dinner because they were going together. You know how sometimes people go together for dinner with a family and they have nothing to say. And wow, this two or three years old is giving them a lecture about dinosaurs. Wow. And so cute, you know, he had these big blue eyes and with this blonde curly hair. And I remember his little hand would come up when he talks about Brachiosaurus. <laughs> And, you know, some people thought, gee, my goodness, free entertainment. So, uh, you know, I, I didn't need to do anything and I didn't need to manipulate him to impress anybody because I wasn't seeking anybody's approval. So I'm sure some of the people in this restaurant or some people when I was breastfeeding a four years old in public um, had judgmental thoughts. But my commitment is to my child, not to impress anybody. So we are, in order to help our child have high self-esteem, we have yeah, to, to heal ourselves. Yes, and work on, and I do that a lot of parents, work on their own need for approval and free themselves from that need for approval from their parents, from their relatives, lots and lots of stories. Uh, and that freedom allows you to be the parent you want to be and allow your child to stay rooted in themselves, which is what self-esteem is. And what a wonderful note that is to wrap up our interview. Naomi, I'm sure we could speak for another hour and you've been so kind coming here to share your wisdom with us. Thank you so much and I, I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I, I have. I did, Anthony. Thank you very much. Lovely to have you in the show and perhaps we'll speak to you again maybe in six months or a year's time. Absolutely, I would be happy to. Lovely. Okay, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share the show with anyone that you think might appreciate it. Until next week, be yourself. Well, don't just be yourself. Be yourself and love it.